I was locked in. Oh, here we go. We're on. We're good. Um, got a little wireless thing here. It's fancy, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm going to set this over here out of my way. There we go. That way I don't mess with it. I don't touch it. Um, so we, uh, you know, as I said uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, we record all of these Bible studies. So if you, for some reason, can't make it one week, we have it on um, on digital form. So you'll just have to see. Used to be Pastor Gary back at the computer, but uh, Pastor Charles will be there this afternoon um, to uh, to to take care of all that. If you want to get a, a copy of any of these Bible studies, we've got them on audio. So they're not videoed. Somebody somebody complained to me the other day. They were like, "I can't wait to watch it," and I'm like, "Yeah, it's more of an audio listen thing." And they said, "Oh, good. You've really got a face for radio, so that'll be good." So. <laughs> Thank you to our loving church members and family. That um, it's, that's why I started doing audio podcasts because I had a face for radio. So um, anyway, so we're in Second Samuel today. I hope that you are excited about this one. A couple of things about the book of Second Samuel uh, in the original Hebrew Bible. So way back, whenever the Old Testament was written, a uh, long, long time ago, the original Hebrew Bible had the books of First and Second Samuel as one book. When it was translated into the Greek, they uh, this was and this was uh, just centuries before Jesus. Okay, so it's a long, long time ago. The the Greeks separated these two books um, into uh, part one and part two, which helps us today. Honestly, we're very blessed because of that. Because Second Samuel is all about King David, and so David. If you don't know much about King David, I'm sure you do. But King David uh, is actually the most mentioned person in the Bible outside of Jesus, uh, if you count all of the Psalms that he wrote. He wrote half the book of Psalms. He's mentioned in the New Testament, in the first book in the New Testament, in the last book of the New Testament. A lot of things point to King David. Uh, a lot of the Old Testament is written about him and the things that he accomplished, the things that God did through him. So it seems fitting and appropriate that he would have an entire book about his life, right? This is the biography of King David. So as we look at 2 Samuel today, you know, last week we talked about 1 Samuel and how it ended with Saul dying. And when that happened, it was kind of this, um, this, this moment of transition. And so we see that we pick up here uh, in, in, first, in 2 Samuel um, the explanation when Saul dies, what happens with David. David, uh, obviously one of Israel's greatest kings, uh, the one that, that at this point through this book, what we'll see is how God told him, this is your lineage, your royal lineage will, will end up with the Messiah in it, which is a great, great news. It's really good to see. And as we, as we see this, the book of 2 Samuel, if you take this far away view, like we're trying to do each week, um, what you'll see is 2 Samuel, uh, we got some beginning and endings here. So 2 Samuel begins with a poem, right? There's a poem that begins. It ends, however, with a plague. It begins with deception from King Saul and that, that lineage and those things. It begins with deception. It ends with devotion is how it ends. Uh, the book of 2 Samuel begins with war. You'll see a lot of war in the beginning of 2 Samuel. It ends, however, with worship. So it's another one of those things. If you step back and look and you watch how the book unfolds, sometimes we forget the beginning of the story, right? Because we just see what we're in right now. We just see the moments that we're in. But instead, we can look at this and see the beginning was um, you know, deception and war and all of these things, but it ends with these 
these devotion and this worship that is a, a pretty beautiful thing. Even in the midst of, if you know that's the bookends of this book, right? That's what holds it all together. But if you were to read the stories in between, there's some problems that come up. There's some issues that arise. There's some things that are difficult uh, with specifically David's life. Whenever we see uh, how this book begins, we see a couple of things when David begins to be king. And there's a few things that we notice of the, the spiritual temperature. Sometimes that's how we'll, we'll um, describe a, um, uh, the, the culture and the way things are. The spiritual temperature of the people of God is difficult. They're torn in this moment by civil war. There's, there's a, a group of people that hate another group of people. And so David steps right into that. Like he didn't step into this wonderful, beautiful, luxurious kingdom. Right? He stepped into some, some problems. He stepped into some things that were just tough to deal with and tough to, to navigate through. Um, he also stepped into a place that there were enemies all around the people of Israel and that had not been fully defeated. Right? We've seen throughout these scriptures, throughout these, these books in the Bible, God would say, go and wipe all these people out. And Israel would go and do almost that. And then because of the almost obedience, there was a lot of problems that came from that. So David had to deal even in this book with the Philistines again and these Amorites, again, all of these different people and these different groups that Israel was, was uh, having to battle against. So we see these pieces go on. Um, and so what we did see, though, is that David brings Israel out of a lot of trouble into a lot of triumph. He was a, a victorious warrior king. That's who David was. Um, he had this great ability to, uh, to be a general and, and great leader of, in, in wartime. Uh, great moments. And we, we even see through a lot of difficulty, which we'll pick up here in just a few minutes, um, even through all of that, David ends up uh, uh, winning in the end. And it was a good thing and, uh, for this man after God's own heart as we know him. Um, and so for our study today, we're going to look at 2 Samuel in three parts. So these three parts, as I've been kind of uh, surveying over the book and praying and looking and reading and reading and reading and reading, uh, the three sections, um, I've even titled them all with the letter W just to help me to stay on track. Uh, the first part is the waiting. Those are the first four chapters. Then uh, the next eight chapters, we're going to call the winning and then those uh, next, then those last twelve chapters, we're going to call the waning, the waning. And so we see the waiting, and we see the winning, and then we see the waning. And as you think about this, the first section is only four chapters long, right? Chapters one through four. That's the that's the waiting part. Then you've got the winning part. It's eight chapters. It's twice as long as the waiting. Man, that's good. I like to think about that. I like to think that my winning will be twice as long as all the patience and waiting that I had, right? And then the last 12 chapters, the biggest portion is the waning. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound too good. That sounds like some problems and some issues. It seems as though sometimes the pattern of our life is we have to be patient, and then we get to see some victory, but then there's always these problems that come creeping back in, right? We just can't get out of this life just winning, winning, winning all the time with no problems. If you can tell me how to do that, that would be awesome, and I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. That would be Fantastic. Um, so as we look at David's biography here in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, I just want you to think about those three sections and these three parts and how there's more time devoted. And I want you to think about it this way. The Scripture was written for us to understand who God is. Right. This is, this is our connection piece to the author. And he spent more time 
on the difficulties in David's life than he did on the winning in David's life in this particular biography. So just think through, as we're walking through this, I believe it's, it's to show us, it, it reveals more of God, right? It reveals more of who our author is and who the author of life is for us and how he's caring for us and um, how he will continue to chase after us um, no matter what. So in the first section, chapters 1 through 4, uh, we begin by seeing Saul's downfall in chapter 1. Saul has a downfall when he fell, um, and I say fell meaning he, um, uh, he abandoned God, he abandoned um, the truth of the Scripture, he, he uh, went away from God's plan, went to his own. Um, what we saw after his failure is it wasn't just Saul that fell, it was his whole household. What we will notice through this book specifically, I talk a lot about family, right? I talk, I mean, I, I seem to always talk about family, partly because I, that's what I know. I know family. I know my daughters. I know my wife. I know my parents. I know my, my uh, grandparents. I, I, I even knew my great grandparents. My great grandparents were alive till I was almost 20 years old. Like, how crazy is that? That's wild to think. And so, um, uh, my, I know family well. I had a, a very good family. Growing up, I've got a good family now, and I've, I've learned the delicate, this is, let me say this again, the delicate ecosystem that a family is. A family, if I start being disobedient to the Lord, my family is going to experience my disobedience. It's not just me disobeying and then I get all the problems. That's not how that works. I disobey, my daughters have to deal with problems. If I'm out of God's will, my wife is going to experience difficulty that she shouldn't experience. Why? Because of my failure. Because I'm the leader of my household. Saul, we see, we notice in this very first chapter, when he fell, his whole house fell. Well, why is that? Because Saul was self-focused. That's, that's the bottom line. If, all the, the problems I saw in Saul's life. King Saul, he started out this great leader, right? And then he just begins to get really arrogant, really prideful. And as soon as he turned to self, his house was destroyed. It fell hard. So he was focused on self always. Uh, and what we see in chapter 1, down towards the end, we see David, uh, in, you can read in verses 17 and following, this poem that David wrote. Uh, David was lamenting over Saul's death and over Jonathan's death. I want you to think about this for just a second. He even says in here, it, it's, he even says some compassionate things about, um, about Saul and about Jonathan. And when he, when he talks about these guys, I, I, cannot, I cannot figure out, I, Saul, do you remember Saul for a big portion, for years, sent his army to kill David? Why in the world would David say a nice thing about the guy? Why would he say anything? But what it was, it was showing that David was a man of great character. He was not going to, to bash this other leader that God had obviously put in place. Now again, it may not have been God's perfect plan, but God allowed it to happen, so he gave him the authority that, that was the king's authority. And so what David says is, I, I'm not going to fight the guy. He, he's dead. His son Jonathan, who was my best friend, has died. And so David shows high character by not even bashing these guys. He's like, it's over. Their, their, their chapter is over. They did good things. They were strong in battle. They were whatever, whatever, whatever. You can go read uh, as David explains that in the, in the first chapter. 
It just makes me think, even though Saul's men tried to kill him, David still did the right thing. He still was honoring. And we can take a life lesson from that, right? If we can learn anything, those enemies that we have out there, I mean, tried to kill him. And like David knew it, he was running away. It wasn't like David thought, oh, I didn't realize he didn't like me. <laughs> there wasn't that moment. It was, it was very clear this guy hated me, tried to kill me on numerous occasions. And even David, if you remember, had opportunity to kill Saul, and he wouldn't do it because he was being patient, waiting on the Lord. That's what David was doing. So we see that in the first chapter there, the kind of the downfall of Saul and his house and the, the difficulties. Then we see uh, chapters 2 through 4, uh, we see that Saul, how Saul kind of defiled things. There was a war going on. Listen, listen to what happened here. This was, this was kind of amazing. When I stepped back and looked at it from a, from a distance, I noticed that Saul's family and David's family, they were at civil war with one another. They hated each other. Saul's house specifically hated David's house. So what happened? Well, after Saul died, what you'll read through these, through these chapters, Saul dies, and David becomes king of Judah. Not of all the house of Israel, but just the nation, just the section, the, the tribe of Judah. And so David became king there, but this guy named Abner, Abner was the general of Saul's army. Abner was the one who, who kind of took the reins after Saul died in his house. Now here's the thing we need to note. Abner went against the structure and the the order of the Lord, automatically. Because, so if Saul dies as king, the next heir should have been Jonathan, right? Well, Jonathan had died in the battle, um, in, um, uh, in, in the battle at Mount, uh, 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 um, I had this written out, yeah, Gilboa. And so Jonathan died in that battle. And so the next in line would have been this guy named Mephibosheth, right? We know him, we pick him up in a couple of chapters. So that should have been the next heir to the throne, Instead, Abner, who wasn't of the bloodline of the royalty, he says, I know Mephibosheth, and he's lame, he's crippled in both feet, nobody's going to follow him, I'll just take the reins. And in fact, I will, I, will, I will try to circumvent the plan of God, and I'm going to put this other guy in charge, I'm going to use this puppet to be the talking piece, to be the king, and I'm going to just talk through him, right? We see this kind of political corruption taking place. This person is Ish, Ishbosheth, and he was a guy who um, just literally, Abner says, I'm going to push this guy in. In the second chapter, we see he is made king of Israel. So David, now you know, here's the thing about all of this that, that blows my mind. Any moment, David um, could, have, could have just destroyed Ishbosheth. He could have just come in and said, I'm going to take him out and, and take it by force. Because here's what happened. This lasted, this political civil war, and these, these, these two nations against each other, it, happened, it was going on for seven years. Seven years. Now think about this. David was king of Judah, and the rightful king of all the people of Israel. The rightful king of all. God had already anointed him and ordained him to be king, and yet here he was, David having to show some patience again. And what happened was David said, I can go and take by force what belongs to me. I can do that. David could have outgeneraled Abner any day. Day, night, weekend, week out, didn't matter. David could have outgeneraled him easily, like no problem at all. Instead, David says, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait on the Lord's timing. It's craziness. I, I don't even, I, as I was reading this, trying to see the story for what it was, trying to be in the story in the moment, right? I mean, year two, there's some frustration. 
right? Year three, there's some frustration. Year four, there's some little skirmishes that come up between the two nations, but David always, he always waited and was patient. He could have gone in, taken by force, and taken what was rightly his. He didn't. Instead, uh, we see after seven and a half years, Abner shows up and says, you know what, I'm going to make my peace. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna be, I'm just going to say it's, it's fine. So now the wait is over. And what we find uh, towards the end of these, this section um, in chapter 5, what we'll find is that David is finally anointed the king over all of Israel, over all of the people. Um, now I want you to think about this. You know, I talk about, I talk about time a lot, and I talk about years and days and all that. David was about 16 years old when Samuel had anointed him king secretly. Okay? Nobody knew it, right? So they were, they were just at the house. Samuel says, this is the guy that God has chosen to be king. He's about 16. Now, at this point, by chapter 5, Daniel is about, or David is about, is about 30. He's about 30. He's had to wait 14 years to actually see what God's plan was from the beginning, to actually experience what God wanted for him. He never took by force. He didn't step in and say, I'll fix this. He didn't step in and say, this is what God said to me, so I'm going to force you to follow it. He said, I'm going to be patient, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to allow the Lord to do what He's going to do because I believe in His promises. Fourteen years. That's how long David had to wait. As I think through that, there is a, a beautiful piece. You know, we saw Saul. Saul's major failure the first time was he was impatient, right? Well, let's contrast that and see what King David is like. Well, he's already crazy patient. He has waited this thing out. 14 years before he's experienced all that God told him he would experience. So the first section, we see that, that piece of the waiting. Now the waiting is over, come chapter 5, and so what happens next is the winning. David uh, experiences some winning. The first thing we see, each of these chapters, I've, I've got a little title for because I, I was trying to survey it well. So this first chapter, chapter 5, uh, David gets crowned. You see David's crowning um, and... Uh, he, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting, if you, if you look at this, by the time we get to chapter 5, David's crowned king. He has now been crowned or anointed king three times. Think about that. He was anointed king when he was a teenager, secretly. Then he was anointed king of Judah when Saul died. Now he's anointed king over everybody. Three times this guy was anointed king. Like, I don't, I don't even know how that, how that works. Like, that's a weird thing. You know, by this time, he's, he gets to chapter 5, and he's like, oh, I've done this a few times. I know how this process works. You know, he's helping the, he's helping the committee walk through it. He's like, listen, guys, if you want to crown me king, I've done this a couple of times. Here's how we need to do this. Here's the right way to do it. He's, he's anointed king, crowned king. This is the third time it's happened. There is a, there is a, a, a prophetic thing in that when you think about King Jesus, who has multiple times he's crowned. So there's a time he's crowned. None of us were there the first time Jesus was crowned in heaven. It was a, it was a family affair, right? Much like the personal private one that Samuel did the first time for David. It was just a family affair. That was all that was, it was, it was a private thing. There's a day coming where, and depending on how you see the end times rolling in the millennial kingdom and all, all of those things, there's another time Jesus is going to get crowned publicly in the very end, and all is are going to know it. All. 
That's this point. There's a, there's a second point in there we're not going to jump into today because this is not a prophetic Bible study. So in the second, uh, what we'll see um, in the end of chapter 5, one of my favorite stories at the end of chapter 5 is also found, here's the place in Scripture now as we do this survey, it gets really difficult because these stories and these Scriptures are also in other places in the Bible. Right? The end of chapter 5 is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. It's also found in 1 Chronicles chapter 14. So the Chronicles are literally Chronicles. It's, it's a journal of what happened with the kingdoms, right? So these journals that happen, uh, and we'll see again in, in the book of Kings, we'll see a lot of overlay over the next few weeks through these scriptures. But this story in ch- the end of chapter 5, David defeats the Philistines, and once he defeats them, uh, he, they attack again. And when they attack again, he doesn't just go and do the same thing he did. He goes back to the Lord and he says, God, are you going to deliver me out, into the, uh, out of the hands of the Philistines? And he says, yes, I am. And he said, but you're not going to do it the same way. We're going to do it a different way. In fact, this time you're going to go around the backside of the camp and you're going to wait and you're going to do something interesting and different, something that's never been done before. And you're going to see a victory like one you've never seen before. It reminds me, David, in these moments, his patience wasn't just to prove something. His patience was supposed to be a way that God could use him in a way that that he couldn't use an impatient person. David, When David first battled the Philistines in chapter 5, he just goes out and destroys them. He's got a plan. You can read all that in 1 Chronicles chapter 14. He had this plan to go and do this. And then the enemy attacked again in the same location, the same the enemy's attack is the same nearly every time. The enemy knows how to show up in your life and tempt you. He know, listen, he's not coming with, with 85 different temptations. He knows what your bent is. He knows where you're going to fail. He knows where you are going to lean in, in something. Maybe you have this addiction you're drawn to. Maybe you have this problem that you continually go after. Maybe you have this relationship that's toxic. Maybe you have, whatever it is, the enemy knows that. And so he's going to attack the same way every time. Now we, most of us, we're, we're so um, uh, foolish that we think once we defeat the enemy today, next time he comes up, I'm going to do the same thing. And God may be saying, it's time to look at something differently. Let me fight your battles for you. Literally, in this scripture, what happens, we see uh, uh, exposed and opened up in First Chronicles, we see that David, he prays, he's like, God, what do I do? He says, listen, I want to fight this battle for you. So I want you to go around and you're going to listen. Your army's going to be standing there. And you're going to hear sound of marching in the tops of trees. And when you do, you know that's my angel army going in front of you. Then you can go. Like how cool. I get chills. I think you have no idea. It's so good, guys. It's so good. David, if he didn't have patience, he would have just run after and fought the enemy the exact same way. Why? Because he had a victory before. Well, we start thinking the victory is ours, and we're going to find ourselves in some trouble, right? David was patient. He waited, and he waited on the Lord. So we see this, uh, as he is crowned king, that's one of the first things that happens. Just amazing story. And, and can you imagine, David, this new king over all of Israel? He tells the army, they're like, all right, king, we defeated him last time. Here we go again. They're in the same spot. They're set up the same way. The enemy's come in the same direction. And David's like, yeah, we're not going to do it the same this time. Well, but why not? We, we destroyed him. I'm your king, and I'm telling you, I'm going to listen to my king, and we're going to do it the way he says to do it. And he goes and, and and listen, the battle was the Lord's, and everybody celebrated it that way. And so now King David, king over all these people, he's been put in the position he should be in, and now he's reflecting the glory 
of the God who put him there. That's an awesome thought. We next see after, the, after these victories, after David is settled in as king, he sees victory and victory. Now what happens in chapter 6? We see David's convictions. So we first see his crowning, then we see his convictions. In chapter 6, we find that the, the Ark of, of the Covenant of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy object that the people of Israel had, the most holy thing. It, the, the parts of it, I know that you, you've, we've been through the Old Testament, we've seen now uh, the, the pieces of this, was the, the rightful place for the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, right? We know that. So David, whenever he becomes king, the Ark of the Covenant had nearly forgotten, was never, nearly forgotten about. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was left, lay forgotten in this place called Gibeah. And so what David does, as soon as he's settled in as king, he says, it's not, and now we're going to make the choice. It's a conviction of mine that the, the people of God need to be in the presence of God and the things of God need to be among us. The things of God, the Ark and the Covenant needs to be in Jerusalem. That's where it needs to be. So David rallies the troops. He sends the people. They bring it back. And now what we see, because this is King David, if you go into the Psalms, you can find three different Psalms. Psalm 24, 68, and 132. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant is returned, those are the, the celebration hymns for it. Like, that's a cool thought. Like it's, it's cool to see the overlay of how David, because one of the things that David did, he worshipped God. He was a great worshiper. He was a great warrior. He was a great worshiper. As, as he was worshiping God, he worshipped when God did something. He made sure and documented it. He made sure and said, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to write this down. These feelings, these emotions I have, I'm going to write them down. The Psalms are the places in the Scripture that teach us how to communicate with God. If you're ever angry, go to the Psalms. You can read Psalms whenever you're angry, what you do. If you're ever wanting to celebrate and worship, go to the Psalms. They'll tell you how to communicate with God. If you are ever mad at your, at your friend or a family member, go to the Psalms. It'll teach you how to talk to God when you're mad at your friends. Like it will. It'll teach you, have you, are you ever convicted deeply of sin? Go to the Psalms. You can find out how to talk to the Lord when you're convicted. Like it's a great place for us to find. And so whenever the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem, there are some Psalms of celebration. Uh, as, as chapter 6 ends, we see the introduction of David's wife, Michal. And uh, Michal was a daughter of Saul. And um, in, in the Scripture, when you see her, uh, I don't want to talk much about her. Uh, I don't want her to take over the Bible study today. Uh, Michal was much more a daughter of Saul than she was a wife of David. Okay, She was, she was bad news. She, was some, she had some troubles. She was some trouble. Um, so we see her introduced in 2 Samuel in chapter 6 there. Uh, and then we, we move over um, to chapter 7. <laughs> there's, some, there's some of you right now being like, let's talk about her. She sounds interesting, right? Um, you can go check her out later. She's, uh, uh, she's insane. Um, anyway, so we go into chapter 7 now. Um, and chapter 7, we find not only David's convictions and his crowning, but we see David's covenant. Chapter 7 is one of my favorites. I know I say one of my favorites. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to stop saying that. Um, whatever I'm reading right now is my favorite. Uh, but in chapter 7, we see David does something awesome. So he, uh, he loves the Lord, right? So whenever you love someone, you want to do things for them, right? And we all have these, these love languages, right? You've seen the love languages. You've heard of the five love languages. Maybe your love language is gifts. When you love somebody, you want to give them a gift. Maybe it's acts of service. Whenever you love someone, you want to go do something for them, right? Maybe it is words of affirmation. You want to 
You want to be able to tell them how great they are, tell them how much you love them, or speak great words, write a poem, whatever it may be. As you work through those, those love languages, David loves the Lord, and so he goes to the Lord and he says, I want to build you a house. That's what I want to do. I want to build you a house. But not just any house. I want to build a temple like the world has never seen. Why? Because you're so great. Because I love you so much. I want to build this incredible temple that people will look at and say, whoever lives there is in charge of everything. That's what David's heart is saying. Well, David, we find out in his conversation with the Lord, God says, I appreciate that, David, but you're not going to be able to build the temple. And I wondered, why is it that David didn't get to build the temple? And the more I surveyed, the more I read, the more I saw, um, God's temple needed to be built by a man of peace, and David was a man of war. David was a man of war. He was a warrior, and his son Solomon was a man of peace. Solomon was the man of peace. And so God explains to David, you can, you can gather all the materials, gather everything you need to gather, but you're not going to be able to build it. You gather the materials, I'm going to let your son build it. Because he's going to be the one that I want building the temple. And as I worked through that in my head, I thought, well, that's, that seems kind of harsh, right? It seems kind of tough. Until I realized what God did for David. You will see a covenant then that God makes with David. And here's, So here's what happened. David came to the Lord and said, I, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house. And God said to David, I appreciate that. I own all that you own anyway. So like your gift is kind of kind of built by my money anyway, right? This is how this works. Um, but he says to David, I, I appreciate you wanting, wanting to build me a house, but I want to build you a family line that's going to end up saving the world. You know, a principle that I learned from this just this past week was, uh, and it's a principle I've heard and a principle I, I teach, honestly. I've, I've always used the phrase, you can't outgive God right? You just can't. You give God what you have, and God has more than you, and so He can give you more than you have, right? Something like that. This is that moment where David experienced that. I, I, I keep going back to this time in my life when I was here as a youth pastor. I've shared the story dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times by now, around the world. No kidding. Any, any place I go, I share the story of the first time I truly experienced God giving me more than I gave Him. Like, like physically, like absolutely physically. I had no money, very little. I gave my money to the Lord. He told me to give it to him, and I said, God, i got a pregnant wife at home and a baby, and I'm not, we're, I can't give you this money. And God said, I'm asking you to give me this money. So I give him the money. And, I, and I've shared the story here, even in this group, I think. What God did for me over the next two weeks, unreal, unthinkable. I gave God like $74 God ended up through, through grocery cards, through gas cards, through free stuff that just started showing up. It was like $2,000 worth of stuff. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> like, what just happened? I remember telling my dad, I remember calling him and saying, you're not going to believe what happened. I gave all my money to the church, Dad. And he was like, you fool. What are you doing? you got a pregnant wife and my grandbaby is at that house. What are you talking about? Can you feed them? Do I need to give you food? And I'm like, Dad, here's the deal. You don't need to give me anything. In fact, you need some gas this week? I got an extra gas card. I'll, I'll give it to you, Dad. You know, And he was like, wait, what's happened? I remember that was the moment I realized I cannot outgive God. And here's the deal. I've, I've tried it. I've tried. It's, a, it's a crazy life. Now I think, how can I give more away? 
so that I can see what God's going to do with it. Like, it's not about me getting more. It's about me giving more, right? David experiences that in chapter 7. He goes to the Lord, I'll build, I'll build you a house. And God says, thank you for that gesture. I'll tell you what, I'll build you an entire legacy that's going to end up saving the world from their sins and, and bringing the world back to me. And David's like, well, my house looks a little silly now, <laughs> right? This is so crazy. And then what happens next? David worships. He worships after this beautiful covenant is made. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that happens in his prayer of gratitude there at the end of chapter 7. Then what we see in chapter 8, David has some conquests. He has conquering victory after victory after victory. All the enemies in chapter 8. I love chapter 8 because you read this list of enemies and that you realize, you know what the enemies realized? David has got somebody on his side that's stronger than us. That's what you realize. We're not going to mess with him anymore. That's, that's what we see in chapter 8. How did this happen? I, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, that day back 20, uh, 15, 18 years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, uh, when I was here and that, experienced that, that movement of God in my life, after that, you could not have slowed my faith down. It was, it was, no kidding, I was annoying to be around. Like, I remember going to work the next day and explaining to everybody, listen, God's way bigger than y'all think. <laughs> like, I was working at a Christian bookstore, and people would come in, customers would come in, and they're like, we're looking for a book on, you know, try the obedience of, of people to the, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> go and drain all your money. Give it all to Jesus. And they're like, we're just looking for a book today, man. I'm like, you don't have to spend it here. I'm telling you, you'll give it to the church. It's nuts to watch what God does. And they're like, what are you talking about? You could not have slowed my faith in. People would tell me, I remember there was a guy that came in the bookstore a couple of weeks after that event had happened. And he came in and said, uh, he, was, he was an atheist. And I'm like, why are you in a Christian bookstore? You're probably not a full-blown atheist if you're in a Christian bookstore, right? And he's like, well, I'm just trying to get some information on, on some things. And I remember him coming in and, and trying to convince me that God wasn't real. And I'm telling you this, I had been solidified so much that God was real, that He is absolutely 100% exactly who He said He is. I, you could not have shaken me at all. Like it did, You could have come up and told me the craziest story. And I'm like, you know what? I've experienced Him personally. This is We see when David experiences Jesus, God Himself personally, when the next chapter we see victory, victory, victory. All the enemies like, we're backing away from this guy. <laughs> He's something about him is crazy. Something about him doesn't make any sense. He's just winning. So we see that happen. Then we see what happens next in chapter 9. Watch how this biography unfolds. Chapter 9, David says, I want to go bless somebody. Well, of course he does. He's just experienced you can't outgive God. God gives victories to those who are 100% confident that it's the Lord's battle and not their own. So now in chapter 9, he says, I'm going to go bless somebody. So he goes and finds this guy named Mephibosheth. One of the greatest stories of David's compassion. We go from these conquering conquests to this compassion. And we see these compassion. This, this story in, in 2 Samuel 9, one of the, again, one of the greatest. I mean, this is just awesome. Mephibosheth is crippled. He's of the house and line of Saul. He's afraid because David at any moment could kill him and it'd be totally normal. Like, because Mephibosheth could threaten the line of the kingdom of the throne. And so instead of going to kill him, David says, oh no, no, I want to show you great compassion. 
I love you. I love your household. I love Jonathan, your father, who was the, who was the, the son of the king. I want to show you great compassion. And Mephibosheth says, I got nothing to offer. And David says, I'm not asking for anything. I just want to give you care. I want to give you a blessing. I want to show you that I love you. He brings Mephibosheth in. Mephibosheth has a seat at the king's table for the rest of his life. Man, that's awesome. To watch David say, I, I am ready to, to take my relationship with the Lord to the next level. I'm ready to say, I want to share. I want to give. I want to go. This is what I want to do. We see his compassion in chapter 9. Then chapter 10, that next chapter, we see his critics. Look what happens in chapter 10. David tries to do the same thing again. He tries to show compassion again. This time, it's refused. He's trying to show grace to this man uh, named Hanan, and he was the son of Nahash, and, and um, the grace is refused. Instead, listen to what Hanan does. He takes those leaders that, um, that David had sent to go and bless this man, to show him great grace. So this guy, Hanan, shaves off half of the beards of these servants of David. He hacks off their robes, leaving them exposed and ashamed. And then he sent them back with a crazy insulting message. That's what happens in chapter 10. How in the world? You know what? The world, sinners sin. That's what they do. They're good at it. The longer we sin, the better we, the better we get at it. This group that David tried to show compassion on again, they, they come back with this critical word, this critical, um, awful, terrible thing that happened. And here's, here's another thing we need to learn. We, we always see pictures of who God is in these Scriptures. You realize that God will show compassion, but if we reject His grace, if we reject His compassion, the king will not be happy about it. There's a day coming where if you reject God's grace, you're going to spend eternity away from Him, in isolation from God, in a place called hell that was not made for us, it was made for the enemy. It was made for Satan himself. And so God will cast us away if we reject His grace. In the next chapter, what we see um, in chapter uh, 10, at the, towards the end, um, we see that there is um, uh, when the grace is refused and the insulting message comes back, David consults with his mighty men and they go and take out the enemy. That's what happens. He just goes and, and, and kills him, destroys him. says, no, if you're, you're not going to send an insulting message to this king and get away with it. Like, it's not going to happen. Um, it, whenever grace is refused and mocked, the king won't have it. We need to be reminded of that. Um, we don't need to mock God's grace at all, ever. The next two chapters, 11 and 12, uh, we see David's crime. We see David's crime. These uh, two chapters are awful. They're terrible. I wish they weren't in here. Um, these, these just, they're frustrating. They're sad. Um, now we know that it connects something else to the story, right? God is going to continue to work through um, our, our sins and our selfishness and our failures. God still can work, and He still is going to because He's God. Um, David should be in battle, but He's not. He should be... Uh, he should... We, we all know this story of David and Bathsheba. He's on the balcony. He looks over and sees a woman on the house next door. Um, and he, uh, he, he, should be, he should be on the battlefield, but he's not. After he goes out on the balcony and he sees what he sees, he should go back inside, but he doesn't. He, uh, he lingers. He should respect and honor this woman, but he doesn't. He's selfish. 
After the sin takes place, after he after he brings her in, and after he commits this crime, he uh, he should fess up, but he lies. He then um, uh, treats her husband with this awful, terrible thing. He should um, apologize to his to the husband, but instead he murders him. Like there's there's sin is slippery, and once you get on a slope and you're you are moving, the momentum has you. The momentum takes you. Like it is hard to stop at this point. David should have this happen uh, when he's caught. He gets embarrassed, right? The guy Nathan catches him in, in in all this. Says, "Here's what here's what's happened." He he should be he's embarrassed now, and um, then we see he experiences very great loss uh, at the end of chapter twelve. Um, and uh, as we see that the child dies and. Then it's got a little bit of restoration that happens uh, before chapter 13 begins with um, the birth of another son, uh, Solomon. But as we see what's happened, David is miserable. You can go read a lot of the Psalms about these moments where David's confessing and just broken over his sin. See, we, we're, you're going to get to a point where the sin will break you. I don't know where we, we are. You know, I think about if I, if I have a decision to make, and that decision is, Honor the Lord or honor myself. If I ever choose honor myself, then what I will what I will try to do. I've set up these like checkpoints. Uh, there's a great book by Levi Lesko and um, Lesko, and what he says is set up checkpoints in your brain that you have to double check with yourself at a certain point. So as your thought process goes, have a checkpoint and say, is this good for me or is it bad for me? Like the, the simple question. So there's times in my life I've got these little checkpoints. And, and I, I've got them set up times of the day. I've got times of the day set up checkpoints. Because I know that I may not be in the right frame of mind if I'm in a sin or if I'm involved with something that's not honoring the Lord, I, I don't necessarily want to bring up that checkpoint. Right? I'm not like, oh, I'm right in the throes of sin. Let me double check my prayer time today. That's not what I'm going to do. Instead, I've got checkpoints throughout the day that I will say, is this honoring the Lord or is it not? And if it's not, then I know at that checkpoint, I'm not going any further. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back to what honors the Lord. David should have set those up, right? He should have done that. Instead, he gets further and further down the line. And because of that, we see chapter 13. Chapter 13 is miserable. We've gone from, um, the, uh, we've gone from the waiting years to the winning years and now to the waning years. Uh, and, and realize there was a lot of victories before, before the, the problems. Right? A lot of victory. But the problems will cause some waning years. Um, we see family problems beginning. We see this guy named Amnon, one of uh, David's sons. Uh, he, he lusts after one of his half-sisters and um, ends up tricking her, deceiving her, um, lying to her, and then eventually abusing her. And we see um, his... Other half brother Absalom. We see Absalom, this other son of David, who is frustrated. He's mad. He's angry. And as he's angry, he hates what what Amnon does. He also hates that his dad didn't discipline his son. He hates that David didn't take over and do something right. And and honestly, in that moment, I'm kind of on Abs- Absalom's side, right? Why did this dad not fix this problem? Why did this dad not, you know, uh, my, my dad always used to tell me if I ever did anything that was back talking, he said, I would have to pay for the dental bill. 
And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, because all your teeth are going to be knocked out of your face. And I'm like, oh, yes, sir. No problem, right? I, I, I remember that very clearly. I, I would have not done anything against my dad that was like growing up. I mean, it was very, very early on. It was set in my mind that like you cross this guy, then I've got to find a job. And it's going to be hard to find a job if I don't have any teeth. And I'm trying to smile in a job interview. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's like, okay, I need to make sure this is okay. I'm kind of agreeing with Absalom in this moment where he's mad at his dad for not fixing this problem. Now, the truth is, the problem happened before when David stepped out of God's will. When David wasn't the man he was supposed to be, then we know, ultimately, we can tell by what's happening, he wasn't the father he was supposed to be. Right? He failed a few areas. He didn't know what was going on in his household. He didn't have the right system set up, the right processes set up. He didn't have those checkpoints set up. I have checkpoints to check on my kids. I have checkpoints every day. Whenever I drop my kids off this morning, I drop my kids off at school. They go to two different schools. It's on the same campus. I drop my first one off. As she's walking out of the car, I'm saying a prayer. As then she gets out of the car, and I've got about four more minutes till I get to the next entrance with my other daughter. And as I'm pulling up to that entrance, I'm talking to her. I'm giving her her rah-rah, go get them today, you know, speech. She gets out of the car. As soon as that door shuts, I'm saying another prayer. Those are checkpoints in my life. And then I know that whenever we lay down at night, those checkpoints are brought back up. I think about the prayer I said for them that morning, and I ask them, tell me something about your day that you got to experience something great. Well, we don't talk about negative stuff at bedtime. We talk about positive stuff because I, I want them dreaming about God. That's what I want. So I got checkpoints. Now, David had not had those checkpoints set up in his home to check in on his family. What happens? Absalom murders his brother. That's, that's what took place. Now, Absalom sees that this is a great act of leadership. right? Absalom's like, I'm going to take over and do the right thing. My dad's not going to be strong, a strong, mighty man about it, so I'm going to take care of it. I'll be the man of the house. We see now the order of God's family structure is now flipping, right? Absalom thinking, I'll take the lead. And God's like, I didn't call you to be the leader of that household, Absalom. Don't step out of my will. Don't step out of my structure. Don't step out of my authority and what I've placed. I have an order. Absalom does it anyway. Then we see that Absalom gets exiled. Uh, and this all happens in chapter 13, by the way. It's a lot, lot in there. Uh, but I want to make sure we understand the, the, the reasoning as, we, as Absalom is kicked out then of the nation, he's in exile for three years. Uh, he then gets granted um, amnesty to come back um, in, uh, in chapter 14. So he returns. And his, at his return, he begins to plot to overthrow his father and get his father out of office. You know, three years in exile after you are mad at your parents <laughs> are probably not going to be a good three years. The whole time, you're three years out there, you're thinking... How can I fix this? My parents did something wrong to me. Bl he's blaming his parents now, right? That's what uh, you can go, you can, you can talk to most therapists and you can say, what, when a kid comes in here, who do they blame for their problems? And they're going to say, they're blaming them for their parents. That's who they're going to blame. He's in exile for three years. He comes back to Jerusalem. He begins to plot to overthrow his dad. He starts talking to people in the kingdom and he's a smooth talker. People like this guy. He's a good looking guy. He's got real good, smooth words. People are now starting to follow him. And so now there's a rebellion that takes place. And David is run out of town. And so we see those over the next couple of chapters, um, how, that, how that plays out. David's run out of town. 
whenever he flees Jerusalem, uh, he, um, the, the scene that takes place as David is run out of town, Absalom does the most vile, disgusting thing maybe in the whole Old Testament. He takes the women in his father's house and does a public display that is uh, like utterly, utterly vile, evil in, among the people. Does that in chapter 15 um, towards the, uh, in the middle before David is finally fleeing all the way out of Jerusalem. Absalom does this terrible, awful deed. When, when David flees, he gets out. We see chapter 16. Uh, there's this uh, man, Shimei, who's just cursing him. After David gets fully out of Shimei's uh, reach, then he writes Psalm 3. For thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. We sang about that Sunday. We love that psalm. We love it. It's incredible. I read it every, every week. I will read that psalm. It is powerful. It is amazing. Many are they who rise up against me. But thou, O Lord... You're, you're the glory. You're, my, you're the lifter of my head. Can you imagine? Did you hear what all David had just experienced? How can you worship after that? How can you say God is still good in the midst of a child that had just died, another child that had just been murdered, another child that had been raped, another child that had killed, another child that had been exiled, another child that came in and rebelled and overthrew your king, another child like. And what happened to all the women in his house? Are you serious right now? David goes in and says, this God is awesome. He knows me personally. He loves me personally. I'll tell you, when I, when I realized years ago that Psalm 3 was written after this, I thought, where did that come from? Man, that is of the Lord if it's anything. It's amazing and incredible. After that, David comes back whenever he returns um, he, he finds out that, uh, that, that Absalom is killed in a battle. Um, and the way he's killed is kind of spectacular, actually. He, um, he, he comes in and he's, he's killed, and he, uh, he actually gets killed by... He was riding on his animal, and there was, some, there was a low-hanging tree, and he gets his head caught, and the, the donkey keeps going, and, and he's just suspended there, and he hangs himself. Like, that's, that's what happens. Like, kind of a humiliating death for somebody that thought he was going to be the big dog on campus, Right? This is not something, I mean, there wasn't even a guy that killed him. It was, it was his, his donkey that he was leading led him into the wrong place. Like that's, that's what, and he didn't duck his head. I, I don't know if that's a, that sounds like a chapter title of a book, right? Just duck your head. That sounds like what it should be. Um, Absalom dies. Whenever Absalom is killed in this moment, uh, suspended there, um, David hears the word, word gets back to David, David hears it. He cries and he's in mourning, like broken over this. And even the nation is, is confused. They're like, why is he broken? He's now the king again. He's now back where he's supposed to be. And you know, you've got David's mighty men around him who are saying, listen, David, this, the Lord has put you back where you're supposed to be. Like, let's, let's move on. Let's go. Let's do what we're supposed to do. So he's back home now in Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 19, we see, and uh, that it just talks about how what, what David does then in those moments whenever he returns back home. The last five chapters of the book of Samuel um, are the five chapters that deal with the cost of our sin. It deals with the cost of what David's failures ended up costing him. We see in these chapters, uh, we see war that breaks out. 
I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wars broken into these last five chapters. There's rebellions that take place. We see a famine. We, we see a famine that happens in the land. We also see this plague that enters. Um, and the way I want to close today is there's a lot, a lot of those really tough, rough, bad things that happen and take place. Um, but this book ends in one of the most amazing ways. And I didn't realize it until I was studying for this today. Um, so these last five chapters give us, it really does give us the cost of, of, of failing the Lord and whenever we don't align with His purposes and His plans. And um, we see these wars, we see these, these, these rebellions, we see all these things that take place, natural things then that occur. First, the first two we see are human kind of things, man issues. Then we see the famine, that's a God thing. God sends this famine. Then we see a plague, that's a God thing, right? Humans didn't create this plague that happened here in this Scripture. And so... What we notice, though, as it ends, the very last chapter, we will see something crazy take place. The terrible plague that destroyed the nation. Listen to what happened. As I, as I realized, kind of backing up, this plague that took place, do you realize what stopped the plague, what slowed it down, what made it stop, was David took the place of the mediator stood between the angel that was avenging the, the, the move of God, the move of this difficult, and the suffering people. So David, if you look at the picture as it, as it wraps up, David says, these people didn't cause this. I did. As the leader, I failed. As the leader, I made the mistake. These people are dying because of my mistake. So he stands in between. He goes as the mediator between the judgment that's coming and those who are experiencing the judgment. Now, if you, if you want to look at Jesus standing as our mediator between the judgment that is coming and those that are with us that are experiencing it. Now, the difference is Jesus didn't bring the judgment on, right? But there is a holy judgment that is coming down to people. And Jesus says, I will be the mediator. You know, we have a mediator. We have an advocate in Jesus who is pleading our case for us. Who says, oh no, their penalty has been paid for. You can take it out on me. That's what David says to this angel that's coming with this wrath. He says, take it out on me, not on them. That's what Jesus does for us. It takes place on a threshing floor of a Jebusite. And uh, in, in the typical act of worship, here's how it, here's how it closes. David um, brought, bought the land. He made a down payment on the land there in that place, on that threshing floor. Um, his down payment, in fact, uh, was 50 shekels of silver. He later bought the whole area, uh, six acres, right about six acres, uh, for 600 shekels of gold. Uh, we see that in 1 Chronicles 21. That's it's where that is, is documented a little bit more. Um, but do you realize that was the spot that he bought? That was the spot that Solomon built the temple. Man, how cool is that? Like, how awesome is that? The fact that the, the Bible, this, this, this book ends by pointing to David, who is a man after God's own heart. You know, even through failures, even through difficulty, even through struggle, even through sin and, and rebellion and family problems and issue after issue after issue. Through all of that, 
we still find the man who was after God's own heart worshiping at the end, trying his best to be faithful and do what was right. You know, looking through this book today, um, I can't help but think, like, we all have a biography about us, right? We all have our story. We all have, um, you know, wherever we are in the midst of our story. Uh, I want to encourage you today to, to put up some checkpoints in your own life. Um, I, I know I have them in mine, and I continue to put more checkpoints up when I realize other, other weaknesses in my armor, right? Other, other holes in my armor that need to be repaired. I find another checkpoint. Okay, Lord, don't let me go past this again. Like, let me, let me, let me know at this time of day, at this moment, when I see this person, when I have this text message, when my phone dings, when whatever happens, let me take a checkpoint to make sure I'm still aligning with you and your plan and your will. Um, but I also want to be able to tell the Lord, even if I make mistakes, when I make mistakes, because I will, when I fail, because I will, um, always bring me back to the altar. That's where David was found here at the end of 2 Samuel. He was found in the altar um, doing something that he didn't even realize. You know, he's, he's buying the land because he's trying to be faithful. He didn't even realize that Solomon would end up constructing the thing that David wanted to do for the Lord when David was, was still kind of pure in a lot of things, right? In early, his early walk with the Lord, God, I love you so much, I want to build you a house. He goes through all kinds of problems. All kind, and you've got to imagine, in, in the middle of his problems, he's got to be thinking, the Lord told me he was going to bring the Messiah through this line. Like, this line is, my, my house is in, in, it's in some trouble. <laughs> my house is in disarray right now. And so we find him at the end saying, I'm going to trust that the Lord can do it. Even through all of my failures, through all the things that I've done wrong, I believe God is going to still be faithful. And thank the Lord that the Bible doesn't close in 2 Samuel. Thank the Lord that it keeps going and that we get to see what God does through it all. Next week, we're going to be in 1 Kings, so I encourage you to go and do a little skim of it this week and uh, check it out. It's going to be a fun, a fun one as we go through. Uh, but let's, uh, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love. And um, Lord, I want to thank you for King David. He made a lot of mistakes, but he also saw a lot of victory. But I love those, those victory chapters. And just looking at how it, it plays a part in our lives today. If we, if we, we try to give to you, and we realize that we can't outgive you, you're, you're going to give more to us. You return tenfold our efforts. Lord, whether it be our time, whether it be the talents that you've given us, whether it be the, um, the, the money, the finances, the resources, whatever it looks like, Lord, we can't outgive you. We, we, we can try, and it's a fun game to try. It's fun to watch how faithfulness and obedience will, will end up benefiting us in the end. I, I don't know how we, we're obedient to you and it ends up being better for us. Lord, today, may we be found faithful. Uh, Lord, may we learn from David's wins and David's losses and this great king of Israel, uh, his patience. May we learn from all of that today so that we can be more like you and more like the great king that that David um, represented a little bit. May we be more like King Jesus, who is our great mediator between the judgment and us who can't afford the judgment. Lord, thank you um, for all that you do. We pray that you would take us from here and let us go about our day today honoring you and telling people about the goodness of who you are. And let the enemy know that your hand is on us. 
and that we are yours. We thank you. Give you praise for what you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here today. I hope that you 